Good evening. Lamentations chapter 4 this evening. Lamentations chapter 4. Despite all my efforts, we'll only be doing two verses tonight. So. Lamentations chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. The Lord hath accomplished his fury. He hath poured out his fierce anger, and hath kindled a fire in Zion, and it hath devoured the foundations thereof. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and enemy should have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. Let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here tonight. We thank you that we can sing praises to you, Lord, and now to have a message from your word. Lord, I pray that you'll just be with me tonight, that you'll just calm my nerves and that you'll give me the right words to say, Lord, and that you'll give me the wisdom and understanding I need. And I pray that you'll just prepare our hearts and our minds for this message, that we would all be able to understand and apply this to our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> We've been looking through Lamentations and the results of... Um, results of Judah's sin and Jeremiah has been lamenting over all that has come about because Judah, Judah, uh, Judah turned their back on God and so God punished them and this punishment was a, a chastisement to try and correct them and in, verse, in Lamentations 4 11 to 12 what we have is God's wrath described and we can in, in this we can find five observations of God's wrath five observations of God's wrath and by understanding a little bit better how God's wrath or what God's wrath is we can better understand how he feels towards our sin and understand the warning involved when we begin to displease and rebel against God. Judah felt the wrath of God and it forever changed them. So firstly tonight I'd like to look at the fact that God's wrath has an end. God's wrath has an end. In verse 11, The Lord hath accomplished his fury, he poured out his fierce anger. The Lord's wrath has an end. His anger does not abide forever. This is one of the more happier parts of this message. <laughs> it's something that we can take comfort in, that when God becomes angry at us because we have disobeyed him and sinned, even when he is chastening us, or even when it gets to the point where his wrath is involved in correcting us, that wrath is not forever. Even for Judah, the Lord hath accomplished his fury. The word accomplished means to complete, bring to an end, spent or used up. To, to get a better idea of this, if we, if we look at the word fury, the word fury carries with it the idea of a bottle. And often what, what we can think of is when we get angry, 
our anger is like a bottle that we've put all of our negative emotions into. Everything that's annoyed us and upset us and we've tried to hide it and push it under, it gets put into a bottle. But eventually it becomes too much and it explodes. The bottle is poured out and it is spent. This is kind of what God's wrath is like. It's like a bottle. And every time he shows mercy, he takes the, the, the wrath that he feels and he puts it into that bottle. That anger towards those who have sinned against him. The judgment that should fall upon them, he puts into a bottle. And instead he uses lighter measures to correct them. But when that fails, he often pulls out that bottle and judges his people. He unseals the bottle. Often when we get angry to the point of rage, after that we feel exhausted or spent. And God's wrath has been used up. It has been accomplished. He's poured out, expended his rage his anger towards the sin of his people. And the Lord is, Lord's mercy is a seal on that bottle. It holds back the judgment. But if we do not heed his chastisements, then he gives us a final notice, and that is his wrath. His wrath is one final attempt often to get our attention before judgment is passed. One final attempt to correct his erring children, to bring us back to him. And if we refuse, then judgment often falls. This is what Judah was feeling, a final attempt, his wrath put upon them, an attempt to correct them in the most drastic measures to stop his people from falling further and further into the darkness of their own sin. And indeed, there, is, there are ways to turn away God's wrath, to bring an end to them. Turn with me to Second Chronicles in chapter 12. <coughs> Second Chronicles chapter 12, and starting in verse 5. Then came Shemaiah, the prophet of Rehoboam, and to the princes of Judah that were gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. Whereupon the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves, and they said, the Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves. Therefore I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out upon Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless they shall be his servants, that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries." 
Here the people of Judah received a warning. Judgment was coming. The wrath of God was going to be poured out upon them because they had turned away from God. And upon hearing this, we, we learn that they humbled themselves. They humbled themselves. They saw their error. They saw that God was righteous in, this, in his wrath and his judgment upon them. And they turned back to God. We find this again in Second Chronicles in chapter 32. Turn with me there. Second Chronicles chapter 32. Starting in verse 1. After these things and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of... I think I've gone to the wrong place, yeah? Ah, yes, I have. Sorry. Um, what have I done? I've written down the wrong reference. Sorry about that. I know it's around this one. I can't find it. It is around there somewhere, sorry. Um, Hezekiah, again... It does come up that Hezekiah it turns to um, to God and he humbles himself before God. Oh, there it is. I know what it is. Twenty-one, is it? No, it wasn't that. Oh. No, I can't find it now. Was it oh, that's going to bother me. Ah, there it is. Sorry. Ah. <laughs> um, 24, go to 24. <clears throat> In those days Hezekiah was sick to, to the death and prayed unto the Lord and he spake unto him and he gave him a sign. But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Ju Judah and Jerusalem. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Sorry. I knew it was around there somewhere. Um, so what happens is Hezekiah and the people turn back to God after God saves them from Sennacherib, and Hezekiah begins to be lifted up in his pride. And after falling sick because of this, uh, the Lord sa and after this the Lord saves him from his sickness and again his heart was lifted even further up in pride and he turned away from God and thus God put, um, endeavoured to put wrath upon him and Jerusalem because of their pride and upon learning this Hezekiah humbled himself with the people and God's wrath was turned away so there is ways which there is a way that we can turn God's wrath away from us, and that is by humbling ourselves before God. 
by turning back to God, by realising that he is righteous and we are the ones that have made the mistake, that we are the ones that have sinned against him. So we can take comfort in the fact that God's wrath has an end. The second thing that we can observe from this is the appearance of God's wrath, the appearance of God's wrath. Verse 11, we have, The Lord hath accomplished his fury, and he hath poured out his fierce anger. The words fury and fierce and anger are all descriptions of God's wrath. But these are simply human descriptions given given to us to help us understand God's displeasure. The word fury, as I said, means bottle. It can mean bottle, but it also means heat or rage or hot displeasure. is heated up at our sin. The word fierce means heat or burning again. The word anger here is describing the body's outward expressions of anger. When we, if we've ever seen someone grow greatly or truly angry, we often see not their nostril flare or the nostrils flare or they get rapid breathing, their face turns red. This is what the word anger here means. It's describing for us someone who is greatly angry. This is the type of response our rebellion and sin causes in God. He grows angry, displeased. And as I said, this is a way that we describe it in human terms. See, when we often just think of this type of anger, we think of someone who loses control, someone who is goes into a blind rage but this is not who God is certainly our, our sin and our rebellion does trigger a great displeasure and anger in God towards that sin but his anger is more akin to a, the calm fury of a loving king towards a rebellious city in his kingdom he doesn't wish to go to war to quell the rebellion but he must as king. He loves his people. The rebellion is unjustified, but he must deal with the problem. And so with fury and a strong hand, he goes and he deals with the rebellion, not doing any more than what is necessary. He wants his people to make peace with him. And when the, rebellion, and when the rebels surrender, he ceases all acts of aggression. When they come back to him, he shows them peace. This is the type of anger that God has. It's, as I said, like a calm fury. One that deals and does what needs to be done, but stops when it needs to be stopped. It is controlled and measured out. The third observation we take from, from these, these verses regarding God's wrath is its magnitude. Its magnitude. The Lord hath accomplished his fury, he hath poured out his fierce anger, and hath kindled a fire in Zion, and it hath devoured the foundations thereof. The Lord has kindled or set a fire to destroy the very foundations of the city. The word devoured means to consume or destroy 
and he has destroyed the foundations of the base of, of Zion. Now often when fires burn a building down, they burn the, the, t the top of the building, but the foundations are often left. And thus a new building can be erected upon the foundations of the old. There is hope to restore and rebuild. But here God has completely destroyed the foundations. He has torn down the entire structure. Whatever came after would be completely new. Whatever came after would begin it be from the scratch. They would by destroying the foundations, he destroyed the almost looked like he destroyed the hope of the Jews. Their city was destroyed, their kingdom conquered, their people scattered. To the Jews, this would have been as if God had finally forsaken them. His judgment was, seemed to be final. They were no longer his people. The temple was destroyed, the city destroyed. But this was not the case. The people learned of their lesson. But they would not be rebuilt upon the existing foundations. The Jews would no longer turn back to the false gods. The Jews' desire to live like the world and follow after the gods of the nations around them ceased to be a major problem after God's wrath destroyed the city. The root and the seed of sin of that type of that type of sin seemed to have been destroyed. It was a. That's why he just seems to have destroyed the foundations to get at the very heart of the sin so that his people could begin again. That is the magnitude of God's wrath. It's to chastise his people and often it's done to such an extreme to, so that they correct, so that the problem is corrected, to break his people so that he may better use them, to bring his people to a contrite spirit so that they would willingly serve God and forsake sin. But often that requires the existing foundations of our sinful hearts to be broken down so a new structure can be constructed. And all this leads us to the fourth observation of God's wrath, and that is the amazement of it. Verse 12 the kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy should have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. Here we have the amazement of God's wrath. The nation surrounding Judah could not believe that it finally happened. They could not believe that someone had finally brought Judah and the Jews to their knees. The city had been destroyed, the people scattered. That strange and peculiar people were no longer a thorn in their side. 
Many had tried to conquer the city and the people. And while some had succeeded for a time, they always rose back up again. And we need to consider the nation, the, the, the ass of the, the perspective of the nations surrounding Judah. Or even the, the entire, all of the Israelites together. They had a fame about them. Their fame was well known. They had the fame of their founding, their flight from Egypt and the conquest of the land. What should have been an impossible thing happened. There was the fame of their prophets who possessed great power through their God who inspired the people to fight against impossible odds and achieve victory, who spurred on the people, correcting them and leading them back to what their God had commanded. There was the fame of David, he and his mighty men who fought and expanded the nation's borders and saw to to its safety. who brought in great splendour, who upgraded and built new cities. Upon David's death, we learn that many nations surrounding him sent gifts. Pagan nations sent gifts honouring the death of the faithful. That is the fame of David. There was the fame of Solomon, his wisdom and splendour and architecture. He lived during a great time of peace and saw Israel's borders expanded and many nations around honoured Solomon for his wisdom. He was wealthy. He was powerful. There was the fame of Jerusalem. As I said, many had tried to take the city but failed. There There always seemed to be something about Jerusalem. Armies suffered from suffered plagues when they besieged the city. Or a smaller army of the, of the Israelites seemed to be able to defeat the many. Disasters would strike or divine intervention. But many had attempted and many had failed to take the city. So above all, all of this was the fame of the Jewish God. This Jewish God was attributed for all of the other fames. Often when enemies were allowed to triumph over Israel, they insulted the Jews by blaspheming and mocking God. Where was their God this time to save them? Why didn't their God intervene on their behalf? Often it was was the blaspheming and the mocking of God when they finally achieved victory. But there was something different about this defeat. There was something different about this conquest of Judah this time. It was complete. It was definite. The city was destroyed. The people scattered. How could they ever recover? And to some, they could not rectify the previous fames of this people with the current destruction of them? How is it that these people who had opposed so many impossible odds finally met their end? The Jews were defeated. Jerusalem wasn't simply captured, but completely destroyed and left as a desolate ruin. 
for people were killed, enslaved, or scattered amongst other nations. And the nations marveled that what had been tried again and again throughout history finally succeeded. The adversaries and the enemies of Judah have finally breached the gates and won. And often, this is the way with God's people. Throughout history, God's people stand upright. They stand on God's word. They preach the truth. And despite all attacks against us, we continue to stand. But then our pride interferes. We turn away from God. We begin to live like the world and then we fall. And there's celebration. There's astonishment that this, they've finally won. They've found a weakness. They've, been, they've managed to destroy God's people. And this is why we need to be careful of our, sin, of our sin in our lives. This is why we need to ensure that we are living for God because the world is always looking for a way to triumph, for a way to celebrate our defeat. We need to be careful of the sin in our lives because God's wrath can fall upon us. And often the world will take the credit for it. And finally we find in this observation of God's wrath a warning. A warning to us all. A warning to the future Jews that would live. A warning to the Christians and God's people. A warning even to the world. A warning that when we do not obey God, his wrath will fall on us. The Jews had experienced the fury of God's wrath because of their rebelliousness. This provoked a zealous response in the Jews. As I said, they would no longer have a major problem with chasing after the world's idols. However, they did overshoot the mark. In their response to this, they departed from God's word in the opposite direction, adding to it and making more and more sure that they followed it to the extreme. And thus, they lost it again. By Christ's time, we find them that they had departed once again. The priests and Pharisees that should have been leading the people, Christ could only describe them as hypocrites. They did not live by the truth of God's word. They upheld the laws of men once more over the gods. And in their pride, they would not humble themselves to admit it. And in doing so, in 70 AD, God's wrath once again fell on the people of Judah. The Jews were once again left without a home and scattered amongst the nations. They failed once again to heed the warning of God's wrath. To us, that warning is still in existence. We should beware of our sin in our, in our own lives and take heed when God chastens us. For when he chastens us in love, he shows us mercy by holding back his wrath. But if we continue to ignore his corrections, he may unseal that bottle. 
we may re receive a final warning in the form of God's wrath in our lives. Our lives might begin to fall apart. Nothing will seem to go right. All would seem to turn against us. It's the final warning before judgment falls. And to the world, this, the warning of God's wrath is also given. Now, people always ask why God doesn't reveal himself to the world. Why doesn't he give them a sign that is real? God declared himself to the world through his creation, through his word and through his son. And he has shown the mercy towards the whole world by offering restoration and by holding back his wrath upon the world. But there is coming a time when he will no longer hold back his wrath. The world will receive its final notice, a final attempt to correct them. Turn with me to Revelations chapter 15. <clears throat> we won't spend much time in here, don't worry. I'm not going to preach a whole new message or anything. Firstly, we'll see verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvellous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And verse, go to, then jump to verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. I'm sorry, verse 7. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. And then verse 16 17. These vials begin to be unleashed upon the world. They are opened and poured out. And it is interesting that if you read through the section when the vials are filled out, you, after most of the... After nearly every time the vial is poured out, you see the reaction of the world. And the reaction of the world for most of it pouring out to the vial is they defy God. They blaspheme and mock God. They do not humble themselves, but instead they set themselves up in battle formations against him. Look with me just in verse 10 and 11. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. It's interesting that the world seems to be given one final notice in the, in the form of seven vials of God's wrath. Seven attempts to humble the world to return it to the God. For all of history they had demanded a sign and this is the sign that God gives them. And the wrath that he has held back since the time of the flood he now pours upon the world. And their response is to blaspheme and mock him. This is the world, this is what the world is heading towards. And we need to be warning the world of God's wrath to come. Because when it is poured out, 
many will refuse to listen. And the end result will be the destruction of them all. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the warning about your wrath, Lord. We thank you that you are a merciful God that does hold back his wrath and, and shows us great kindness and love despite us rebelling and sinning against you, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would just help us to seek out the sin in our lives and that we would be able to uh, purify ourselves by your word, Lord, and that we would seek to live daily for you. Help us to share your, the message and warning to the world, Lord, that they may avoid your wrath to come as well. In Jesus' name, amen.